Galatians chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, 
provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. So we are now in the fifth week of our series in the book of Galatians. And just to recap what we've been focusing on in this book, my, my theory or my approach to this, uh, this series of teachings in the book of Galatians has been that the Galatians face a sin or face a temptation that is the root temptation and the circumcision issue is actually the fruit temptation. And we saw how in chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul is warring with the Galatians over this issue. He rebukes them. He uses words to highlight the error and the seriousness of their error. But he shows how that problem of trusting in circumcision or trusting in keeping of the law, that heresy came through the fear of man. That is, the Galatian Christians began to regard these false apostles who came among their midst, and they began to give ear to their teaching because they respected them through not, not through godly fear or, or righteous honor for those who are spiritual leaders, but because they were afraid of what those people thought. And what we see clearly is these Judaizing teachers, they, they come into Galatia, they find a hearing, which Paul rebukes them for, and then that hearing begins to actually convince some of the Galatians to begin to move away from Christ. And here, as we get to this chapter, Paul is really laying down the gauntlet of what it means for these Galatian Christians to have received circumcision. One of the things that we're going to settle today is, well, what is Paul talking about, this notion of being under the law versus doing the works of the law from the heart? Is Paul rejecting the importance of the law? Is he saying the law is meaningless to Christians? And indeed, he's not, as we're going to see. But quite clearly, what he's showing is the spiritual danger of looking to something after coming to Christ, looking to anything outside of Christ to establish one's peace and righteousness with God. That is to say, he uses wordplay here, and we're going to get into what beautiful language he's using. We're going to get into how he's using that to demonstrate the severity of their error and the severity of what it, what it is to turn away from Christ. I think what Paul is saying here is you cannot turn to something without turning away from Christ. That is, if I'm looking towards, in this case, my circumcision, or keeping the law, or obeying God's commands, each single one of them, and measuring my acceptability or righteousness with God, then that is looking away from Christ. I cannot simultaneously look to, to Christ and look to the works of the flesh. Uh, and and if, if I do that, I'm actually turning my back on Christ. I'm, I'm renouncing and rejecting all what I have formerly claimed to, to live by. And so Paul has reminded them. He, remember last week we talked about Paul saying there were these two women, the, the bond woman and the free woman. And he uses the allegory of Sarah and Hagar and their children, their boys, to describe these Galatian Christians. And he says, brothers, we are surely children of the free woman. Uh, one of the things we'll see today is this amazing confidence that Paul has in the sovereignty of God prevailing 
that is, the truth will prevail. So this is our series. It's a series in which we're examining how did the Galatian Christians begin to tolerate this error through the fear of man? How did they begin to be persuaded? Well, because as Paul says again in this chapter, a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. And the danger and error of looking away from Christ, looking to establish your own righteousness by doing the works of the law. Although we are not facing the error or heresy of circumcision, many of you men would never be tempted by such a thing, but there are alternative things which vie for our heart and for our affections, which, which we seek to establish our own righteousness with God, whether it's getting straight A's or having a perfectly manicured lawn or having a great career and a, you know just uh, as many children as you can have or getting a raise, or moving on, getting more friends, or getting a girlfriend or a boyfriend. We look to these things at the heart level, and even if they don't tempt us to, to switch away from Christ, we, we think we're still Christians. When we begin to make that subtle heart shift from looking at Christ, trusting in Christ, relying upon His grace, to putting our confidence in the attaining of a better life, or the fixing of character flaws in ourselves, or the acquiring of material goods, or favor, or friendship, or relationships, these things are like a small circumcision. They're like a a little keeping of the law that if we could only establish a, a good and better life, if we could only finally get our act together, then we could be recognized by God. But brothers and sisters, as Paul shows clearly here in this chapter, Christ is the one who delivers us from the works of the flesh. The Spirit is the one who enables us to live a new life. Not in order to be received by God, but having been received by God, we walk that out. So that's what we're going to focus on today, is how do we walk out the Christian life? Is it by doing it our own, or is it by trusting in the powering, in the empowering of the Spirit? And indeed, Paul is telling them, walk according, not to your own design, not according to your own plan, not according to your life vision, as important as I think having life goals is, walk according to the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. I, I like to think Paul's making a metaphor here of, of a dance, if you will. That is, when, when two people are dancing, usually especially in Western dance, the man is leading and he moves and the, the, his partner, the woman, is responding to his movement. I think that's what Paul has in mind in a sense. He's saying, keep in step with the Spirit. Uh, follow after the way that the Spirit is leading. And just to be very clear, he's not asking these Galatian Christians to engage in some sort of navel gazing or go off to a room and meditate for 10 minutes and figure out what the Spirit wants you to do. He, he's actually saying these things are very evident. The works of the flesh are evident and the fruit of the Spirit is evident. And those two evidences are rubrics, they're standards by which he's asking them to evaluate themselves. So I want to get into today's passage looking specifically at three, uh, three emphases. First, this notion of what Paul says is they've been cut off from Christ. We're going to see how that language is very important to hear because he's saying something and he's using, he's using language in this chapter very carefully to explain the severity of what's gone on here. So they're, they're severed from Christ if they receive circumcision. Paul then says he has confidence in the Lord 
that they will take no other view. What an amazing statement. Five chapters of rebuke and admonition and condemnation against turning away from Christ, and yet he's, he's convinced about the gospel and the truth winning out in the end. I think this has something to tell us about the confidence of the, that we should have in the scriptures and also of God's ability to bring us to, uh, to maturity, to Christian maturity. And then I want to look at what does it mean to fulfill the law? You, this may sound surprising, but actually Paul's not warring against the law. He's warring against those who are trusting in the works of the law. And we, we saw that last week, but I just want to make it very plain today. And I think Paul's aim here is to say, if you, if you aren't engaging in the fruit of the Spirit, if the deeds of the flesh are manifest in your life, then you are not even a Christian. That's what I believe Paul is saying at the end of this chapter. We're going to look at that very carefully. And then I'm going to give some caveats. He's not saying that you can't become a Christian until you do these things. He's giving evidences for what it means to be walking according to the Spirit. That, that is, those who are in Christ, those who've been adopted by the Father through Christ, are part of a new family. They're the children of Abraham. They're alive to God. They've crucified the flesh. And this idea of the resurrection coming forth and breaking into their life even now as they wait for the hope of the resurrection on the final day. So let's get into today's chapter. So Paul begins this section of the letter. He didn't insert the chapter breaks, but this is a helpful place for us to to divide the book. Paul begins reminding them of the purpose for which they have been called. They have not been called in order to become new slaves to some other set of laws, but rather they have be, they've been called to become free. They have been called to be truly human. What do I mean by this? I mean that all those who are trapped under the law because of the sinfulness of the flesh are less than human. That is to say, in some sense, Adam and Eve in the garden had a true reality of life. And through the fall, the effect of sin has so marred their person, character, and mind that they have been distorted and twisted from their nature. That is, that in themselves, they are somehow less than human. And this speaks to a grand narrative around the entire world. All cultures in all times have had some theory as to what went wrong. And what Paul is doing here is he's saying that in Christ, we've been liberated from the damage of the effects of the fall. We have been liberated from a dead flesh that is unable to do the works of the law. It's unable to have peace with God. It's unable to find harmony in God's world because it was constantly at war with God's ways and God's person. Paul does this after reiterating or or reminding them they, he says, I am confident of this, that you are children of the free woman. He reminds them of this freedom, and then he moves on with very sharp words to make plain the severity of turning back to the law. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. There's a purpose, there's a goal that Christ has when he sets a person free. He sets them free, not in order for them to live the rest of their life constantly ashamed with indwelling sin. 
If that is your perspective on what it means to be a Christian, I, I hope to elevate your vision to a higher calling. Paul is saying, here's your destiny, here's your end goal. It's to be a new human in Christ. It's for Christ's resurrection by the power of the Spirit to come alive and be at work in you and for you to be a new creature. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What is, what is the danger in the Galatian church? The danger is that church had so tolerated the Judaizing teaching that it had a voice in their culture. Whether or not the Judaizers were speaking on a Sunday morning, the people in that congregation and indeed the congregations of that city were susceptible to that teaching. Very similar to today's message. You might not go to a church where health and wealth prosperity gospel is preached, but it's in the ether of the Christian culture around us. You might not go to a church, indeed, if you're going to this church, you do not go to a church in which dispensational theology, which divides up the, the covenants of God into discrete parts that have no relation to each other. You might not be susceptible to that teaching in this church, but it's in the ether. It's the air you breathe. It's the water you swim in. And so what Paul is saying is stand firm against the Judaizing teaching. Just because you see some so-called brothers engaging in this around you, do not go with them. He then warns them very strongly. He, he basically calls them to resist that teaching, standing firm in the faith. And then if, they, if any confusion would remain at this point in the, in the letter, he then brings out language that is very clear and very, very uh, uh, sharp. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. What does he mean by this? Does he mean that those who've been circumcised cannot come to Christ? No, indeed, the opposite. What he's saying is, if you Galatian Christians claim to look to Christ, and then you take on circumcision, then Christ your claim on Christ is a false claim. It has no reality behind it. It's as if you've stolen a title deed to a house, written your name on it, taken it to the court, and tried to win the house through the court of law. They will laugh you out of the courtroom because there's no, there's no claim deed on the other side in the, in the county office that says you're truly a Christian. That's what he's saying here. If you claim Christ... If you, if you seek to be justified by Christ and yet you go out and reach for something to really satisfy, if you reach for circumcision to really make you right with God, then Christ is of no benefit to you. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. You see how he reiterates here? He says, Christ is no advantage. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Now, if you hear that, you might say, oh, well, Paul understands that Christ is for the Christians and the keeping of the law is for the Jews. Brothers and sisters, it's very clear throughout all of Paul's writings, indeed in this book alone, no flesh can be justified by doing the works of the law. What he's saying to them by saying, if you receive circumcision, you have to keep the rest of the whole law, is he's saying, you think you'll add to Christ with this circumcision, but actually you're taking yourself outside of Christ. You're revealing yourself to have been removed from Christ or severed from Christ or cut off. Though receiving circumcision had been required in the old covenant, it is no longer the mode of the administration of the new covenant. 
What do I mean by this? I mean, it was commanded of Abraham and Abraham's descendants that they receive circumcision. And if they did not receive circumcision, they would be cut off from among their people. Okay, so in the Old Covenant, circumcision was commanded as an act of obedience for those who were in Abraham under the promise. But as the New Testament shows us quite clearly, Jesus Christ in his mediatorial office as the true high priest set aside the Old Covenant, as the book of Hebrews tells us, and he established or enacted or put into force the New Covenant. Now, the putting into force of the New Covenant does not mean that the law has no effect for Christians. It changes its role. One, as we, as we saw in the last few weeks, from indicating sin to pointing forward for a need for, for righteousness. Okay, so Paul is saying that they have been cut off from Christ. Christ will be no advantage to them, and they will have to keep the whole law. For the Galatian Christians to, after conversion, receive circumcision would be to accept the teaching of the Judaizers. And the teaching of the Judaizers is essentially this. If you boil down their doctrines and all their commandments of what you have to do externally, what they're saying through their teaching is, Christ is not enough. And so what Paul is saying is, Galatian Christians, if you take circumcision on, and by taking it on you are speaking to God I need something other than the blood of Christ, then what Paul is saying is, I, I testify to you that you are cut off from Christ, that you aren't even in him at all. Paul's wordplay here is intentional, and he's appealing to the rhetorical senses of his hearers. He's appealing to them, and he's using phrases which would have been extremely common in that day to talk about circumcision. Remember how earlier we talked about in Genesis 17, anyone who does not receive the mark of the covenant is cut off from the people. He's removed from the people. And we've seen in this series in, Galatia, in, the, in the book of Galatians that the whole debate was, how do I know whether I'm in God's people or outside of God's people? For the nation of Israel, during the administration of the Old Covenant, circumcision was the mark externally whether or not they were a part of that covenant or not, whether they were Jewish or whether they were a Gentile, whether they were in the covenant or out of the covenant. But Paul is saying that in the New Covenant, with the unveiling of it and the establishing of it, the circumcision which matters is not external but internal. And that circumcision, which is internal, is done by God himself. If you didn't know this, you can't cut up your heart and live. It is impossible for you to do that. That's what the, the scripture is talking about. The, the new covenant is a promise for a new heart, a heart that is, that is restored. The Galatians receiving circumcision think that they are being joined to God through the cutting off of the foreskin, but they are the ones being cut off. Do you see the irony here? This is what Paul is trying to say to them very clearly. In, in Genesis, the commandment given to Abraham was, if you do not receive circumcision, you will be cut off. And now Paul is saying, now that you're in Christ, now that you've been unioned to Christ, if you reach outside of Christ for something to justify, you are the one who is being cut off. And so with, the, with circumcision, the cutting off of the foreskin, that person who formerly claimed Christ, is now himself cutting himself off from the community. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, 
you have fallen away from grace. How do we know Paul is intentionally using this sort of language and that sort of imagery? It's because he brings it up again, as we'll see in just a few statements. Heard in the language of the scriptures, Paul's statement is extremely alarming. As I mentioned in Genesis 17, the fear of the Jew in that day was that through some sort of sin or illness or other law-breaking that he would be removed from his people. If you read the Old Covenant scriptures and you go through the laws, there are many laws which state that if you do this or if this happens to you, you have to be excluded from the assembly. For example, if you, if you uh, have leprosy, you have to be removed from the community. It's, it's a form or a picture of the goat who has to go into the wilderness to bear its penalty away from the camp. And so what Paul is saying here to these people who are very familiar with the language of the scriptures is, is alarm bells, it's, it's yellow highlighter, it's warning signs, flashing neon, buzzer alarm. He's telling them the very thing that you hope to use to get into the community of God's people is actually putting you outside of Christ. It's giving evidence that your knowledge of Christ is wrong. It's your trusting in Christ is, is a false trust. You're not truly trusting from the heart. Through the very act that they hope to gain entrance to, the, to God's people, they are being cut off from God's anointed one. On the contrary, those who are of God's people are marked by the faithful trust in the promise of God. Remember, Paul said to them, you are Abraham's children if you emulate his faith, not his obedience. The faith precedes obedience. For through the Spirit, by faith, we, Paul, and the writers of, with him, and those who are Christians, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, this should sound kind of confusing a little bit, because just a few sentences ago, he said, if you receive circumcision, Christ won't help you. But now he says, in Christ, circumcision doesn't matter. So which is it? Can I be circumcised and have Christ? Or can I have Christ and then get circumcised? The order is important. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if you claim Christ to be your surety, to be your justification with God, if you look to Jesus Christ to unify you to God, to wash you of your sins and to make you a new creature, and then you reach outside of Christ in order to add to him, then Christ is no benefit. But what he's saying is, if you were a Jew, if you were circumcised, or if you were a Gentile, if you were uncircumcised, and you take on Christ, then your former life, according to your ethnicity or your former background, it doesn't count at all. Isn't this amazing? That Jews and Gentiles are equally called, that they're equally applicable to join as members of the new covenant, that the prerequisites have been removed and the only condition is faith-filled response to the promise. Paul is dismayed and bewildered at their rejection of Christ. He says, you were running well. Remember what we talked about last week. There was a sign of grace upon the Galatians. They did receive Paul even as a messenger of God, as a messenger of Christ himself. And then something happened. They turned on him. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This should, again, it, it should make you a little bit confused because we just heard in the former verse, he says, but only faith working through love. And now he says, 
Who has hindered you from obeying the truth? What is he getting at? What is he saying? He's saying that obedience is faith-filled response to the promises of God. It is not keeping the law externally. He goes on to say this persuasion, this teaching, the Judaizing teaching, is not from him who calls you. This is reminiscent of 1 John. These, these apostles went out from us, but they were not of us. Or otherwise, they wouldn't have gone out because they didn't have the authority to go out. These same false apostles who have come to, not the same ones, but the same category of false apostles have come to Galatia, and they have not come from Jesus Christ. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. He shows that a failure to, to place one's faith and trust in Christ is disobedient to the promise. In John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching, I believe it's the Feast of Booths, and he's explaining to the people who are gathered in Jerusalem. He says, come to me, you can find rest. I'll give you water for your souls. You'll never uh, hunger again. And he goes on to explain what it means to trust in God for righteousness. He's giving an appeal to the people. He's, he's giving a free invitation. And at some point, they, in listening to them, in listening to him, the people ask Jesus, what should we do in order to be doing the works of God? That is, what do we have to do to, to have peace with God? What do we have to do to know that we are received by the Father? And he gives them one commandment. He doesn't reiterate the two commandments in which he summarized the whole law, love God, love your neighbor. He said, this is the work of God, to believe in the one whom he sent. That is what it means for the new covenant to require obedience. It requires obedience in this one specific point. That is, we trust upon Christ. We honor the Father by recognizing that he sent the Son, and we cling to the Son, knowing that he himself is our righteousness. That is what Paul says when he's saying, who hindered you from obeying the truth? The, the disobedience to the truth that the Galatians were engaging in is they were reaching outside of the new covenant. They were rejecting Christ by going around Christ. They were rejecting the, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one sent by his father, and they were saying that Christ is not enough. And indeed, by saying that, that means the father was wrong in sending him, that the crucifixion wasn't sufficient, that it was essentially a waste. Paul draws on the teachings of Christ here to show that their toleration of the Judaizing teaching threatened the whole church. We've seen this again and again in Galatians 2. Paul is saying, here's why I rebuked Peter openly, because once men, not sent from James, but left James and came down to Galatia, once they came, they started teaching this Judaizing teaching, and even Peter and Barnabas began to be swept up in their error. He's saying that the toleration of this teaching in the Galatian church is going to spread unless it's cut off. The whole dough, the whole lump, every part of the bread, the loaf of Christ, the one body, everything is in jeopardy and in play here if this teaching is tolerated. Yet strangely, even though he says this, even though he's perplexed by their and bewildered at this, at this point, he's completely caught off guard that they've adopted and imbibed of this teaching, he then makes this statement that is profound and quite beautiful. Verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. He doesn't say, I have confidence in you that you'll hear my teaching. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. What he's saying is he is expecting them to be persuaded by the truth 
And although I'm not sure if Paul knows that he is writing scripture, we know quite clearly that these words by Paul are inspired by the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of God was working through Paul to produce a change in his hearers, and that that Holy Spirit was so moving upon the hearts of his hearers that they were seeing the error of their sinful rebellion against Christ and the danger of putting something between me and Christ. And he says, I am confident that you will have no other view. That is, the truth will win out. The sovereignty of God will prevail in the Galatian church and they will not be delivered up to error, but they will be turned. Not only that, and the one who is troubling will bear the penalty, whoever he is. As you begin to be, or as you continue throughout your life as a student of the scriptures, the beauty of the scriptures becomes more marvelous over time. In certain letters, Paul names the person who is doing the, the sin. Uh, in the book of, uh, I believe it's Thessalonians, he names a few people. Uh, and in the Corinthian, the Corinthian letters, I think he names a few people as well. I think it is significant that these people are not named. But I want you to look at this language, and I want you to see how important it is. Circumcision, the taking on of the mark, was seen as bearing the covenant. Circumcision was the act of being a representative of the covenant. And bearing the covenant, or being one who takes on the mark of the covenant, was the nomenclature, it was the wordage, or the the verbiage used for who's a member of the covenant. Do I bear the mark, or do I not bear the mark? And yet this false apostle will not be blessed, but will be cursed, not for bringing people into God's house, but for troubling God's house. You see, in the old covenant administration, God commanded the males to be circumcised, that they bear the mark of the covenant. And in bearing the mark of the covenant, they were seen, and God approved of them as receiving the covenant and being in with the covenant. If you think this isn't important, remember that weird passage where Moses has not circumcised his boys. And even though he was chosen by God to be the mediator between God and the people at that time, an angel of the Lord stands in front of him and is about to kill him. What happens? His wife Zipporah goes and circumcises his boys and she takes the foreskin and puts it on Moses' toe. Why? Because he had to be seen as someone who was keeping the covenant. If Moses should approach God outside of being in God's covenant, he would come in in his own presumption. You see, the most confusing parts of the Bible actually help explain the less confusing parts of the Bible. That, that is one of the weirdest chapters in the scriptures, if not the weirdest chapter, but it quite clearly shows that bearing the mark of the covenant is extremely important to God. Circumcision in the old covenant administration was no trivial matter, but now that the mark of the covenant has changed. To go and try to use the mark of the former covenant is invalid. And indeed, it actually doesn't bring you into the people of God, but it makes you accursed from the people of God. As Paul said in the former chapter, let him be anathema. See, he's saying, I'm confident of this one thing, that you will take no other view, and the one who troubles you will bear the curse or bear the penalty, whoever he is. I think that the lack of the name for this false apostle is even an indication that he is not approved. The, the law over and over again talks about those who are rejecting God through their sin, that he will blot out their name from his book. I think that Paul is, is using this phrase, and in fact, he says, the one, 
who is troubling you. He doesn't name them. And then he goes on and inserts this little phrase that I think is a good hint, whoever he is. He's kind of pointing to the fact that this false apostle, it, it, it appears that there was this one head guy who was coming in to Galatia, the Galatian church, and he was maybe the troubling instigator. Paul's saying, I'm not even going to name him. We're not even going to remember who he was. I think that's significant. Nevertheless, moving on, Paul is not crude for shock value alone. I love when uh, young Christians get a hold of these verses and, well, see, Paul used the word for dung and, you know, that it's, it's intentional. It's not Paul goofing around. Paul is using this language and he's using it to say something very precise. And he is using crude language, to be clear. He is using language that should be embarrassing, but he's using it to shame those who are doing shameful things. Our world hates the notion of shame. It hates any notion of the, the guilt which accompanies sin. But Paul is using this language to say something very clear, very clearly. He desires to put an end to the teaching of the Judaizers. I want you to think about the imagery of circumcision. It is cutting off the foreskin off of the male penis. And that act of cutting off the foreskin is a bloody act. And it is doing something that is, that is near something very important anatomically for a man. And what Paul says here is in verse 12, I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. He's saying they should move the knife up a few inches, to put it crudely. Why? Because this teaching is from the pit of hell, and it wars against the church, and it leads people astray from Christ. And not only that, the seed is having an effect. He's saying, I wish that their seed or their teaching, the word is sperma, the, the teaching would be cut off at the source. That is what Paul is saying. And you see, he uses this language for a specific reason. He uses it to shock through the layers of religion and the layers of unbelief and the layers of callousness of heart to get to the heart of the matter. He's saying, I wish that their teaching was stopped completely. Why does he wish them to be emasculated? Because they are not of God's seed. Genesis 1 tells us that the seed brings forth or yields up fruit after its kind or in like nature. That is to say that these Judaizers, they might be able to teach somebody who was a former Christian and, and they might be able to infect somebody, but now whoever they infect, they're going to go and do the same thing. They're going to lead others astray from Christ. And Paul's saying, I wish that they would not be effective anymore. First John tells us that we are of God's seed and everyone who is of God's seed stops sinning because he is not able to. Why? because God's seed brings forth fruit after its own kind. He's saying that I hope that these people would be silenced in their teaching, that their teaching would not lead any other astray. So Paul reminds the Galatians of their calling and purpose. He reminds them that they were called to freedom and that these Judaizers were distracting them from purity of following Jesus Christ. And therefore, he goes on to tell them that they are to fulfill the law in the freedom of Christ, not to ignore the law. And it's very, very important that we see how he says this because he actually lists a number of things that he calls works of the flesh and each specific one of them is written about against, or written against in the law. 
You see, the law, though we are not trapped under it as we saw last week, we have been liberated and we are not unable to do the law. We are in grace. We are in a context in which the law still speaks to us. It has a moral use for the Christian. Verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He's saying that the grace of Christ should not be perverted for the use of sinful desire, for your own purposes. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. I want you to think very clearly. Why would Paul appeal to them fulfilling the law if the freedom of Christians was being delivered from the law? It's not. He's appealing to the law. You see, when we read the New Testament, so often we are trained to, by the spirituality in the ether of our culture, to make a distinction between Old Covenant and New Covenant. And Paul always argues the other way. He is appealing to the law. He says, for the law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying, you've been freed. Don't use your freedom for the flesh, but love, love one another. And if you love one another, you're doing the law. The law, therefore, teaches us what it means to love our neighbor. Love is not defined by culture. It is not defined by the whims of men. It's not defined by whether someone feels like you're loving them or feels like you're being accepted by them. Loving someone is taught to us, and it's taught to us by the law. It teaches us the ethical and judicial regulation between people, whether, it's, whether or not it is kind to steal from someone, whether or not it is kind to destroy a marriage through adultery, whether it, or not it is kind to lead someone else into idolatry. The law tells us what is loving our neighbor. So he appeals to the law and he says, if you love one another, you fulfill the law. The question is this, why would he appeal to the intent of the law if they were to now ignore it because they're in Christ? And, and we, we, can, we can hear Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I came to abolish the law, but to put it into force. You see, before a, a person is remade in the image of Christ, they cannot do the works of the law at all. But after they come to Christ, they do not look to the law to provide their justification, but they do look to the law to inform them, what does it mean to love my neighbor? Do I help my neighbor or not? Do I provide for my neighbor or do I not provide for my neighbor? Do I serve my neighbor or not? What does it mean to love my neighbor? That's what the law tells us. Paul then teaches the Galatians the nature of Christian living as a crucifixion of the flesh and a submitting of its desires to the Spirit. He says in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. You see, what Paul is saying is that this indwelling sin, what he calls flesh, has, is supposed to be crucified. And the crucifixion of the flesh enables one to keep the law. And that crucifixion of the flesh can only be done by faith and in union with Jesus Christ. Many people use Paul's next statement to prove the invalidity of the law for Christians, but Paul actually is saying the opposite. Look very closely here. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. They take that verse, they pull it out of context and say, See, brother, we're not under the law. And I would say... Heartily, amen. We are not trapped under the law, to use the context of Galatians 4. We're not under the law so as to not be able to do it. 
We are not held under or kept under or captive under. Now we have been liberated because Christ was born of a woman born under the law to provide a means of escape for all those who were in fear of slavery. That is, that death working as the product of sin told us of our our future state that we were to be condemned. But now Christ has borne the penalty and delivered those who were trapped under the law to a new freedom. And that freedom is really being true humans, being alive, walking before God. And the law tells us what it means to walk before God in righteousness. Not in order to be justified, but in order to know what it means to be either right or wrong. That is to to do ethical things, to love our neighbor, or to not do ethical things, to hate our neighbor. Each one of these works of the flesh are either specific laws in the Old Testament scriptures or categories of law. It's very important that you know that because what, what people think is that Paul is inventing this completely new ethic. But actually, he's stating that the works of the flesh are the breaking of the law of God. If you go and look in the Old Testament, each one of these has either a specific law or categories of law. For example, sexual immorality. There's a whole category in Leviticus 16 of types of sexual immorality that in addition to the adultery, which is forbidden in the Ten Commandments, and on and on. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, that's one of the Ten Commandments. Sorcery, that's one of the specific laws. Enmity, strife, jealousy, Ten Commandments, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Is Paul inventing a new ethic? Is Paul giving a new law? No, he is just saying that the works of the flesh are the breaking of the law. And then he goes on to say, don't, don't break the law. Those who are led by the Spirit are not trapped under the law so as to not be able to do it, but those who walk according to the flesh are justly condemned by the law, for they are lawbreakers. If you want to understand this a little bit more, go to 1 Timothy and read that chapter. Paul says there's a righteous use of the law, and the law is not given for the righteous, but it's given for the lawbreakers because it teaches them what unrighteousness is. Paul then goes on to identify the fruit of the Spirit as the evidence of real Christianity. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, uh, sorry, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And notice this phrase. If Paul said that the law didn't matter to them anymore, then why would he say this phrase? Against these things, there is no law. If there was a law, then the Galatians would have said, well, wait a second, Paul, we're not under the law. No, Paul is saying that the law has no prohibition against the fruit of the Spirit. Why? Because the law is still providing a helpful use to these Christians. Again, not to establish righteousness, but to inform them how to live before God. Verse 24, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. What does that mean? In the context of what he just said, all the works of the flesh are types and instances of breaking the law. So those who've crucified the flesh are those who now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as new creations in Christ, want to fulfill the law from the heart. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's an evidence, that's an indicator of the mark of what it means to be a Christian. It's not circumcision on the outside. It's circumcision of the heart. 
the heart has been cut. The heart has been created anew. The new covenant promise that given through Jeremiah has come true. They have a new heart. They are now able to do the law from the heart. Those who belong to Jesus Christ are not to walk according to the flesh any longer, but should walk after the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, and indeed we do, Paul's saying that the Spirit is the one who animates us, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If you hear Paul in verse 24 saying, those who are in Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh and with its desires and passions, and you say to yourself, well, it's quite clearly the case from my own walk, that I can say there are still ongoing fleshly passions and sins. I take it to be his indication in verse 25, to be saying to you and to me, that although we, we might see those evidences here and there, we ought not to follow them. That's what I think he's saying in verse 25, that we might not despair. He includes this statement saying, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step. First, he gives an indication. They have crucified the flesh. And then he goes on and gives another con- command. Therefore, don't walk according to the flesh. It's this grand mystery in the Christian life, how we can be new creations and yet susceptible to former temptation. And yet I think what Paul is doing at the end of this section, even at the end of this chapter, is he's saying, he's saying, you are alive in the Spirit. I'm confident that you'll receive this teaching. I'm confident in the Lord that he will cause you to reject the Judaizing error and to walk again according to the Spirit. Therefore, don't follow the flesh any longer. I think Paul is trying to give in this one sentence a word of encouragement to those Christians who might look at verse 24 and say, I I don't know if I passed the test. How can I follow after Christ? Do I need to try to crucify the flesh or do I need to more thoroughly walk according to the Spirit? And I think he would say the latter. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us the freedom that Paul is talking about, that we would no longer be Uh, a seeking to establish righteousness of our own, that we would not look past or around Christ or look outside of him for our justification, but that we would cling to Jesus Christ as the wonderful and pure mediator of a new covenant. Lord, we thank you that he not only died, but was resurrected and is seated at your right hand. We thank you that our hope is a living Christ and that just as we live by the Spirit, that we would be enabled by your grace to put to death the deeds of the flesh and that we would continue to do so, that you would bring us in ever-increasing measures of victory against the flesh and its passions. We pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from any sort of compromise or a toleration of sin and that you would give to us by your grace a grand and lofty high calling of the freedom that we have in Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.